This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. After a uh, one-month hiatus for the summer, we are now back to our schedule. Zachary, are you excited to be back? Yes, I'm very excited. What did you do during the time we were away? I think we already spoke about this. I was an intern at the, the Bundestag in, in Berlin. Yeah, That's great. So you, you infiltrated the uh, German government. <laughs> I wouldn't say infiltrated. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you brought your wisdom. Exactly. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, sure. Excellent. Well, as long as you didn't exfiltrate the German government. Exactly. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> Who knows? That remains to be seen. <laughs> as many of you might recognize, uh, we're beginning our new season uh, with one of our favorite guests. We've had more than 125 different guests over more than 240 episodes now, and one of our all time favorites and one of the most insightful and always evocative and creative and provocative guests is our friend Michael Kimmage. We're going to talk to Michael Kimmage today about where we are in the war in Ukraine. We've had him on a few times uh, and from the comments from our listeners, he's been one of our favorite guests, especially for the way he elucidates this complex tragedy unfolding before our eyes. I know Michael's been thinking a lot about this. Uh, Michael, thank you for joining us again. It's wonderful to be back with you, Jeremy and Zachary. To remind everyone of, of Michael's illustrious pedigree and all the things he writes that you should try to keep up with. I say try because I can't keep up with everything he writes. He writes frequently for Foreign Affairs and for various other uh, outlets on the war in Ukraine. In addition to being a scholar of the war, he is also uh, a scholar of the West, of Western intellectual ideas, political and diplomatic ideas. Among his many writings is his most recently published, already published book, The Abandonment of the West. The History of an Idea. I encourage uh, everyone to read that if they haven't already. Really provides a foundation for understanding where we are today. And Michael has a forthcoming book on the war in Ukraine. I think this will be one of the most important books uh, for understanding the war as contemporary history. And the title, I believe, is Collisions. Is that correct, Michael? That's it, Collisions. And when will it be available? February 24th, 2024, so the second anniversary of the start of the war. Wow. And, and are, you, are you hopeful that that'll be the end of the war? Well, I, I would hope for the soonest possible end of the war, but I suspect it's, it's, it's going to be very much ongoing in February. Unfortunately, you're probably right. Before we get uh, further into our discussion with Michael about, about this terrible war, uh, we have, of course, our scene-setting poem for Mr. Zachary Suri. Uh, I haven't said scene-setting poem in about a month. It feels good. Uh, what's the title of your scene-setting poem, Mr. Zachary Suri? For Yegor. For Yegor. Okay, we're going to find out who Yegor is in the poem. Yes? Sure. Okay, let's hear it. Listening to Shostakovich's 10th, I am reminded that this miserable world is miserable for you too. I remember how much you dreamed of New York and a business jet. I hope only that you do not lie somewhere on one of those battlefields where a generation goes to die. I know what unjust war is, but I know this one is true. I know not what it means to leave. I hope that now you do. You on a beach where the ocean heaves and cuts the sky in two. But I know that evil needs its own foot soldiers too. 
Please, if I find your picture in the news, let it be your voice in some nightclub where the rich of your land party away the war. Please, if you ever return my call, may it be your voice in Istanbul speaking to me in English and saying the empty glass half full. And please, if I might shake your hand, let us instead embrace. For if there's any hope at all, I'll see it in your face. Hmm. First, Zachary, maybe tell us who Igor is. So this is an excerpt from a poem that I wrote recently about a friend of mine that I met a few years ago from Moscow. His name is Igor. This is sort of, in that sense, very personal about our friendship. But it's also an important reminder that in these wars in which two different state structures and two militaries are are fighting each other, and, and in this context, certainly a, a broader set of allies as well, that there are people who get stuck in the middle, and there are people who are suffering on both sides, and, and even for someone caught on the wrong side of a war, in this case, most certainly on the side that has the most moral blame and, and shame for this war. Which would be Russia. Uh, it, certainly, yeah. That there are people suffering there as well, and that there is also, hopefully, a future in the in the people there and and that we have to when we talk about these things i think distinguish between the people of a country and and their government right so the russian soldiers are in a sense potential victims themselves exactly right? certainly not the primary victims but i think it's important that we remember that there are people suffering in this war on, on both yeah. sides yeah michael your thoughts well it's um you know it's a very striking poem as ever Zachary, somehow the mention of Istanbul is quite interesting. All of these places on the on the spectrum of the Russian diaspora, Armenia, Georgia, Latvia, Germany, Turkey, maybe to a lesser degree, the United States, and this may be a topic we get into later in our conversation, but it's a poem about people who get caught in the middle, as you say, Zachary, but perhaps it's also a poem about the Russia that might be right. in the future. It's hard at the moment to have, to have much optimism about where things are tending in Russia, but this sort of Russia apart, there's a great book by the historian Mark Ryev called Russia Abroad about the diaspora of the post-1917 generation. But this Russia Abroad is a very interesting thing indeed, and it's a good thing to pay attention to. So, so Zachary, as always, your poems draw us into the emotional world of, of all the things that are happening now. And this, this mention of the diaspora, I think, to me, is just especially interesting. Thank you. Uh, and in, in that context, uh, a lot has happened, uh, not just uh, on the battlefields, but also in the halls of power uh, since we last spoke with you. How should we understand the coup that we all witnessed uh, about a month ago in Russia? Or attempted coup, I should say. Right. It's a, it's a, it's a, very, important, uh, it's a very important question. I think that the initial response to the coup, and I think this was sort of uh, my response, and it's good to have a bit of time to pull back and, and reflect on this was that this was the first major crack in the edifice of Putinism since really the construction of Putinism in the early 2000s. Uh, and when I say initial response, I think when I first uh, looked at it, it felt like really this is the kind of the bell tolling in a way for uh, for Putin in, in, in two respects. I mean, one is that even though Prigozhin failed uh, to take Moscow, I don't think that was ever really in the cards, but even though his sort of venture uh, failed, the fact that he was bold enough to do it uh, suggests that there are really significant cracks within uh, the Russian political uh, elite. Uh, and then secondly, the thing I think that really gave Prigozhin encouragement, and I doubt that this has changed at all, or perhaps uh, for Putin it's gotten worse, 
uh, over the last uh, two months uh, is uh, the misery of, of of Russian soldiers on the front. You kind of indicate that a little bit in your poem, Zachary, and I think it's become a very significant dynamic and one that the Kremlin is not able to control. So there's the convergence of these two points, you know, discontent at the front, which I think is really widespread, and the emergence of entrepreneurial activity among people in the Russian elite who are starting to sketch out a future beyond and after Putin. But with the passage of time, it's not been a long time uh, that's passed since since it's June 24th, I think, that the uprising uh, took place. Uh, I don't think that it's come to look like a blip. I think it's still a very significant moment. But you do see that Putin has the capacity to manage some of this stuff, at least for the time being. In other words, there hasn't been a copycat since then. Uh, Progozhin has been to a degree neutralized. And, you know, there's still a kind of leviathan at work in Russia. And if there are cracks in the edifice, you don't want to forget that there's also the edifice itself, uh, which is not, uh, you know, I think about to crumble uh, anytime soon. But it's sort of hard to contextualize exactly how vulnerable Putin is. But the key fact, this is the key takeaway from this very peculiar event, is that he is vulnerable uh, and sort of objectively so. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, an interesting turn in Russia. Uh, and when and if it intensifies, it will be an interesting turn in the war itself, because it can only be prosecuted by a, the war can only be cr- prosecuted by a viable Russian state. Uh, and that's simply not a given. And of course, there's a long history in Russia of discontent among soldiers at, at the front of long land wars in Ukraine or in uh, naval battles in, in the Pacific, leading to political change or dramatic political events. Should we see this moment, you think, as another echo of 1917? Or is this perhaps, uh, maybe we don't have enough time to have seen the consequences fully, or is this perhaps a, a further reinforcement of, of Putin's ongoing grip on, on Russian society? You know, I think in terms of historical analogies, what feels a little bit more apropos than 1917 is uh, is maybe Afghanistan. Uh, and what happened with Afghanistan is, you know, typical for a lot of wars in a lot of countries, is that people started to trickle back into Soviet life at, at, at that stage with a lot of post-traumatic stress disorders and, uh, you know, real sort of um, frustration and anger about the war. Uh, and I think that that did contribute something to the crisis that Mikhail Gorbachev found himself in in 1985. It took him a few years to wind down the war in Afghanistan. But there was this kind of leeching away of support from the system itself, the Soviet system, uh, and Afghanistan was an important tributary uh, into that process. I think that that's structurally somewhat similar to what's happening to the war uh, in Ukraine. It's, it's, it's causing the system to wobble, and I think the Progozhin uprising was definitely... Uh, an emblem of that. I think 1917 is a very difficult comparison to make as of yet for at least two reasons. I think we could probably come up with more, but at least two reasons. One, the kind of immiseration that the First World War caused in Russia, you know, sort of mass hunger, you know, huge dislocations, uh, and a lot of the battlefields were very much uh, either close to or within the, the Russian Empire. I don't think that that's true for Russians living on Russian territory in the midst of this current war. It's just not of the scale or scope uh, of the First World War, and it's not unsettling Russian society as of yet in the way that 1915, 1916, and 1917 did. And then secondly, and this is uh, of the essence for Putin, who is a kind of crazy student of Russian history, but 
uh, at times, you know, has uh, a somewhat canny reading uh, of uh, Russian and Soviet history. There's no revolutionary movement uh, at the present moment in the way that you have the Bolsheviks kind of coalescing into a real movement with a program, an ideology, you know, a set of uh, foundational texts, etc. cetera. Uh, that's just not there. And Putin has devoted a lot of energy to crushing political alternatives uh, to his uh, regime and to a degree, uh, to a large degree successfully when it concerns what you might describe as liberal Russians, you know, sort of urban Russians who would want to see a more westernized country. You know, you have Navalny as the kind of figurehead of that, and he's uh, in prison and under duress at the present moment. Uh, what's interesting is that Prigozhin indicates that there could be sort of a revolution in Russia from the right. Uh, and here, my own knowledge is a little bit too limited. Maybe there's a lot of stuff stirring that resembles a revolutionary moment. It could come for Putin in the next couple of months uh, or years. That's a kind of interesting prospect, but it's not 1917-ish yet in that sense. So I, I, I wouldn't go with 1917. I would sort of go with the 1980s. I, I think that's really astute, Michael. Uh, of course, we should say, and, and you know this as well as anyone, th there there was a revolt against the Tsar from the right in 1917 too. But of course, the revolt on the left was was much more significant, and the, the combination of coup and revolutionary activity does seem to be missing. At least part of that combination uh, today. Uh, how do we understand um, the? role of um, the Russian military during the coup. Uh, what, what seems striking to me as someone who's been trying to follow this, but not with the depth that, that you have, um, is that there wasn't much resistance to Prigozhin. What, what do we make of that? Well, I would be a little bit careful uh, on that point. Uh, I think that uh, what happened on the ground, uh, you know, and this is a little bit through a glass darkly because it's hard to get good evidence on a lot of these points, but I think what happened on the ground was that the Russian military was not given orders for the first 12 to 14 hours. And I think they just didn't know what to do, but they didn't have orders to actively resist. So it wasn't, you know, it could be that certain gestures were sort of gestures of support or maybe pro-Progosian gestures. Uh, but I think more to the point is that they were not told to shoot and they and they didn't shoot. And I think, you know, of course, the dynamic for soldiers that makes it sort of confusing is that the Wagner figures are, uh, are, are Russians, the people in the military are Russians. And so there was a kind of lack of desire, I think, to, uh, to in instigate something, again, maybe not for political or ideological reasons, but just for, you know, sort of more visceral or, or practical reasons. And from what I understand in the kind of <laughs> unbelievably arcane, complicated conversations that seem to have been taking place, uh, on that Saturday afternoon, including the president of Belarus, uh, Alexander Lukashenko, and, and 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 Putin and Prigozhin, is that probably an ultimatum was given to Prigozhin that if he continues, they would start to shoot, they would be given those orders, and then Prigozhin sort of stood down, uh, and you know maybe Prigozhin expected that there would be such confusion or there would be a kind of rebellion within uh, the Kremlin that he could then build upon and then he might've kept going. But I think when he realized that Putin had enough support behind him and that probably he would have been crushed pretty quickly, he, uh, he pulled back. So, you know, I don't know how political it all was in terms of the events on the ground, probably more haphazard, uh, anarchic and then, uh, and then confused. And then when certain decisions were made at the top, uh, they were able to able to stick. It is worth noting that Prigozhin himself, we don't quite know the number, I think it's between 12 and 14, 
he shot down a number of aircraft, uh, Russian military aircraft uh, right. in Russian airspace, uh, and it's Russian military who died uh, on that right. uh, on that particular day. That's of course been downplayed in Russia and sort of swept under the carpet. But those were the casualties of the uh, of uh, of the uprising, uh, and uh, that's that's just an astonishingly notable fact because Putin is rather Prigozhin is alive and kicking. Just showed up at the. Africa summit in St. Petersburg and, you know, sort of a free man uh, after having done that. And that's uh, as shocking as anything else that happened on that day. Absolutely. And it, and it's worth just clarifying, right, that Prigozhin is the leader of uh, a group called the Wagner Group, which is really a paramilitary organization that has worked for and with the Russian government, but is not of the Russian government. It is separate from the Russian government. And so this is, in essence, what you've described so well, Michael, is the equivalent of some paramilitary group in the United States shooting down uh, U.S. Air Force Jets, and it's hard to imagine that anyone responsible for that would be allowed to, you know, operate freely within our society after that. But that seems to be what's what is the case with Prigozhin now, right? The whole thing is unthinkable in the American system. I'm not exactly sure uh, why, what the relevant differences are, but also the, you know, even if it was for only a short period of time, that the Wagner forces took the military headquarters in Rostov-on-Don, which is where yes. the war is being organized from and they sort of held it for x number of uh, of hours and that again you know in the u.s context is just uh it's just unthinkable so um, absolutely the absolutely. level of chaos that was there on that day and the empowerment of wagner so to go back to the initial question about what all of this signifies for russian politics the empowerment of wagner which has since been modified because they've been sort of disempowered in a few ways but the empowerment of wagner up until that point is a very remarkable fact of uh, re very remarkable fact of Russian politics. Uh, it's um, uh, it's astonishing. Yes. So, what does all this mean uh, on the ground in Ukraine? I think that's really the the key set of questions for us today, Michael. Uh, many of us, myself included, right, are trying to follow the war, trying to understand what's going on, and I will admit I'm often baffled. It's hard to know. You you know, some days you hear the Ukrainian offensive is bogged down and they're running out of weapons. Other days, there's evidence that uh, the Russian forces seem to be collapsing around their heels in certain areas. And, and obviously, both are overstatements. How do we understand what's happening and to what extent has the story of the coup or the attempted coup or whatever it was, what we've just discussed, how does that connect to what's happening on the battlefield? I don't think that there's too much of a connection from the coup uh, to the battlefield. I think a sober assessment has to acknowledge that there's not a debilitating crisis of morale uh, on the front. I hope that that's not in contradiction to what I was saying earlier, that there's discontent on the front. Uh, Russian soldiers are unhappy. I think some feel bamboozled into getting there and don't feel well treated. But so far, this has not translated into anything resembling a mutiny on the front or to a kind of laying down of arms. Maybe what we saw in September and October uh, 2022, when you had this really rapid fire Ukrainian offensive uh, below uh, Kharkiv, uh, then you had Russians turning tail uh, and running away. But those were pretty sparsely defended, you know, unprepared areas. And so there is a kind of clear-cut military explanation for why they, why they fled. That's just not been the situation with the counteroffensive so far. And so I don't think morale or even organization is at issue. And there's not been, I think, much spillover from uh, the mutiny to the battlefield performance of the Russians 
so far. You know, the salient differences between now, this summer, and the Kharkiv offensive on the part of Ukraine are, of course, that the Russians have dug in and they've heavily mined uh, the territory. They seem to enjoy a degree of superiority in the uh, in the air war, which they've been, you know, using uh, to some effect. I think everybody knows uh, in the course of this war that it's easier to defend than it is to go on offense, and so that's worked a bit in the uh, in the Russians' uh, favor. And you know, there probably was a framing of the counteroffensive that was maybe a bit over optimistic from the beginning. From what I understand, it's roughly thirty five thousand troops, some of which have been Western trained, uh, but many of which are sort of people who a year or two ago were school teachers or lawyers or, you know, sort of doing things that were very much not military and, you know, have tried to come up to speed, but are maybe not the same in effectiveness as a highly trained long-term fighting force. And they're being asked to do something that's just really, really uh, difficult. I think if we accept this is a really difficult kind of campaign, uh, I think in that sense, it, it it makes it clear that this is not a debacle on Ukraine's side, uh, and it's very possible that some of these great gains will be uh, incremental over the course of the next couple of weeks, uh, territorial uh, gains. But it does seem, I think, reasonable to conclude that a kind of outright breakthrough, a kind of movement of Ukrainian troops down to Melitopol and the kind of cutting of the land bridge that the Russians have to Crimea, that doesn't seem to be in the cards this summer and fall. That may be a uh, that may be an inaccurate uh, judgment. And so we have to think incrementally about the counteroffensive long term uh, and, you know, kind of uh, day by day. Uh, but it's going to be hard. Whatever we might have hoped for when it came to Prigozhin's mutiny, that this really signaled something uh, of a turning point in terms of Russia's capacity to wage the war, that hasn't come to pass. And I think in ways we can discuss, you know, a little bit later. Russia has also tried to change the nature of the war by bombing Ukrainian grain supplies. And uh, there's a kind of new wrinkle, a kind of new iteration of the war that's not connected to the counteroffensive, but uh, is also uh, significant. So, you know, Russia remains uh, a hard army to uh, to dislodge. That's, 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 I'm afraid, the bottom line. And, uh, of course, the Russians have been targeting Odessa, one of the great Ukrainian and Eastern European cultural capitals. And an um, important center of Jewish culture, too. Certainly, yeah, um, in, in recent days. How should we understand Putin's strategy at this moment with not not a stalled counteroffensive, perhaps, but but a, uh, a struggling counteroffensive um, on the part of the Ukrainians? And then, of course, headlines every day about the bombing of grain shipments and of churches and, and cultural centers in Odessa. Where do you think uh, the the Russian strategy is at this moment? And if you'd say a little bit as well about about what the Ukrainian people are experiencing now with with repeated airstrikes on on civilian targets, right? Uh, well, to start there, I mean, of course, that's been the case in Odessa, but we've had attacks, you know, in the last couple of days on Kriviri, which is the hometown of. Mm. Uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, lots of air raid sirens going off in uh, in uh, in Kiev, and um, the awfulness of it is uh, something that we have to make sure that we don't allow our minds to become dull to. Although, in a some in a sense, we've been living with this awfulness now for for seventeen months, but it's twofold: it's the loss of life, and you know the injuries that are sustained in these consistent attacks on civilian 
locations, but it's there's another dimension to it, which I think is maybe not quite as visible to us because it's not as photographic, not the kind of thing that would appear in a, in a, on a video on, 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 on social media, but the disruptions, you know, people who are trying to get their kids through school or to get through the working day, get home on their commute, et cetera. And, you know, the, the constant disruptions, it's, it's a psychological toll that's, that's just very difficult to countenance and very, very sad to, to witness. And that's Odessa and the South and, you know, many other places. In some ways, Kiev now is, is quite well defended in terms of air defenses. So it's harder for the, for the Russians to punch through there. And so they choose these random targets to just sort of keep up the psychological pressure. It's a really grotesque tactic. To move on to the other part of your question, Zachary, in terms of what the Russians may be trying to accomplish, I mean, I think that they're in a pretty bad position structurally in the sense that they're just not in the position probably for the next couple of years to take any of the major Ukrainian cities. So yes, the bombing of Odessa is a, is a part of what they're doing, but they're not going to take Kharkiv, they're not going to take Kiev, they're not going to take Odessa, they're not going to take Chernigov, they're not going to take these cities much too costly. I mean, they've expended so much effort on Bakhmut, which is a city of 70,000, not a big Ukrainian city. Uh, and so without being able to do that, they're not going to be able to turn the war uh, in their uh, direction. So to that degree, they're stuck and they're fending off, of course, the counteroffensive as, we, as we've discussed, but they're not sitting still. So with the attacks on grain, you know, I don't think it's all that difficult to disentangle what they're up to, but it's worth spelling out. You know, there are two benefits that accrue to Russia from uh, attacking Ukrainian grain supplies. One is it contributes to the strangulation of the Ukrainian economy. So this is a huge export good for Ukraine. Uh, and it's now much, much more difficult for Ukrainians to get this uh, to market, although they have very willing buyers. Um, you know, not only has Russia been uh, making it difficult to get grain out through the Black Sea the, with the collapse of the grain deal, but Russia has also been bombing grain supplies uh, on the Danube uh, near uh, Moldova and Romania uh, and making it difficult for Ukraine to get grain out uh, that way. So, you know, that's just, you know, sort of trying to pull the rug out from Ukraine uh, economically. You know, a lot of the mined territory, one should add, is some of Ukraine's best agricultural uh, land. So that's another way in which Russia is kind of waging war against uh, Ukraine's grain supply. Uh, but there are knock-on effects to, to, to doing this kind of attack that serve Russian interests as Putin sees them. Uh, and this is, of course, to raise the price of grain on the international market. And Russia is, after Ukraine, one of the world's major grain suppliers. And being the power that can control, kind of turn off, turn on the grain supply in Ukraine, means that Russia now has a lot of leverage say, over the economy of Egypt and you know, the economy of other countries that are dependent either on Ukrainian grain or dependent on low-cost grain from other uh, countries. So Russia is using this as a choke point, uh, as one might use oil or other you know, sort of things to, uh, to gain leverage. It's a very, very cynical foreign policy, but uh, uh, you know, it is a policy. Uh, finally, what Russia is trying to do is interesting. There's a symmetry here with the war in terms of uh, Ukraine in the West on one side and Russia on the other. What Russia is trying to do is to make the whole war seem futile uh, for Ukraine and for the West. You're never going to win. It's going to go on forever. It's just going to make things worse and worse and worse. And Russia sees in this a potential political argument. AFD polling around 20% in Germany at the moment, upcoming presidential election in the US, lots of countries that are sort of sitting and watching. And Russia is trying to feed both the reality and the narrative of this war 
as an impossible, futile war. To be honest, that's quite similar to the Western strategy in the war to make Russia think that this is futile, it's never going to end, you're never going to win. The Biden administration's phrase for this is the strategic defeat of Russia, that it needs to come to see the war as a strategic defeat. So it's a battle of weapons, it's a battle of grain, it's a battle of air power, but you could also say in a strange sense, it's a kind of battle of dueling images of futility that the West uh, and Ukraine and Russia are trying to impose uh, on, on on one another. But that's where the grain comes in, and that's where some of these attacks on civilian infrastructure come in for Russia. Just make it seem miserable, unending, impossible. Michael, for all of your, I think, compelling reasons not to use the World War One analogy, it seemed you you were using precisely the, <laughs> the language of trench warfare there, right? Which is, uh, and what, what many scholars would write, right? That the war by 1915, 1916 becomes futility and, and to some extent, symmetrical futility and then desperation in the case of World War One, right? Of the Germans with the uh, U-boat uh, warfare, which, which one could argue is similar to Putin's efforts to basically destroy grain shipments coming out of one of the largest grain exporters in the world in, in Ukraine. One of the things we learned in World War I, uh, if, if at least in this part of this discussion the analogy might hold, was that to some extent um, a large land power that is uh, trying to fight a war in this way as Russia is or as Germany was, that, that its resources are actually pretty finite when it can't get support from other places. And so far, it does appear that Ukraine has managed to develop and create a supply line that would be hard for Russia to match. Do you think, well, is that first of all a fair way of looking at this? And and do you think Russia could hang on quite a long time in, in, the, in the strategy that you've described? You know, I think that um, what I would maybe dispute is more than 1917 Russian Revolution uh, analogy, right. at, least, at least so far, which is, of course, a product of the First World War. But I, I 100% agree with you, Jeremy, that at World War One, I, I think is a very instructive, is a very instructive situation. Now, maybe one of the distinctions, I'm not sure how relevant it is, is that, you know, in World War One, you did have France, Britain, Canada, eventually the United States, they were all really uh, direct combatants in the First World War. And then, of course, right. Germany, Austria, uh, etc. On the on the other side, I mean, here the only combatants are Ukraine and Russia, and then there's this whole very very complicated global tapestry of countries from China to Brazil to South Africa uh, to the United States that are participants in a in a in a, in a certain way. India, you know, you should sort of put there because it's buying uh, oil from Russia and you know involved in some degree of uh, of uh, of sort of military trade. Uh, with Russia, not a huge part of the war, but you know, one of the pieces uh, in the in the puzzle. So I think maybe the scope of it, you could say, is smaller than the First World War in the immediate military sense. Uh, but I think that what you describe is uh, is uh, is exactly it, uh, and it takes one to the question of politics because I think that that's in part where the First World War started to change, especially. Uh, in Germany, and you know, it's hard for me to predict there. <laughs> At the moment, I really just can't see a pattern that will emerge. I can kind of imagine scenarios where the politics could shift on both sides or on one side, and the, and the Prigozhin conversation is already a sort of insight into how that might happen uh, in Russia. I would say strategically, if we're going to have 
a set of operating expectations that we, you know, policymakers in Ukraine, policymakers in Europe, policymakers in the U.S., should bring to bear on this on this awful war. Uh, I would make the assumption that Russia will be able to wage this war for quite a long time. It is, I think, a popular war in Russia. Uh, I don't know how to measure this. I would like this not to be the case, uh, but I think it may well be, maybe because most Russians are anti-anti-war or because the Putin arguments resonate uh, uh, throughout the society. You know, either way, I don't think that it's an unpopular war. And I think Russia has enough global contacts that it has markets for its goods. It has uh, ways to, uh, you know, sort of keep on going. Even, you know, I hear from American visitors who go to Kiev now that one of the things Ukrainian government officials will do is show them downed drones and Russian missiles that have all kinds of American components that are under sanctions. So Russia's finding ways to skirt the sanctions regime. Uh, and, you know, it's if the will is there, if Putin is still in power, uh, I'm afraid the capacity will be there. And that's what we should plan for. You know, no right. imminent collapse right. uh, or, or change. If that comes, well, <laughs> thank God it comes. But uh, my planning instinct would be to plan for a very long uh, war fought with a kind of maniacal force uh, on the part of Russia, with Russia seeking, I think this is maybe the area of the war that we haven't thought enough about, with Russia seeking to globalize the war in ways that benefit Russia. Right? Think of the vicious circle that's at work in Ukraine. They attack Ukrainian grain, it hurts the Ukrainian economy, it drives up grain prices, Russia profits from higher grain prices, it can use that money to fuel the war. So uh, we just need to be aware of how these vicious circles are developing and how they might prolong the war in certain ways. And of course, plan accordingly, try to break up those vicious circles, do all kinds of things uh, to act uh, in response. But, um, you know, assume, I would say in this case, a long-term and formidable antagonist in Russia. And it is worth remembering, and this was implied in your really excellent comments, Michael, that uh, Germany, which for much of World War I was largely isolated, uh, still fought for more than four and a half years or almost four and a half years. And after losing, in many cases, thought it had won. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so, so I, I, the, the point there being that uh, a country like Germany in 1917 uh, or Russia today can fight a very, very long time, even when it appears to be uh, cornered in a certain way. Zachary? You mentioned, though, I think in, in this analogy, there's a, there's a lot to learn, but you, you mentioned the the political dynamics uh, in in Ukraine's Western allies, in the United yeah. States, in Germany, uh, in in other parts of Europe, um, and of course in in parts of Asia as well. Um, where do you see uh, the? Do you see in in these political dynamics, many of which are not in favor of Ukraine at the moment, do you see a real a real danger that the war effort on the part of the Ukrainians, not their will to keep fighting? But the, the the critical support that they get from their allies, that that might uh, collapse or at least weaken. Um, and and where do you see uh, Ukraine in, in that conversation? I frankly don't. I mean, I think it's a good thing to pay close attention to. You know, I think that where there are warning signs, they should be taken seriously. It's a it's a hard effort to keep coalitions going, uh, and this is a very very enormous sprawling coalition that's composed of countries that have many different interests and timelines and political characters. So that's, you know, by de definition, a hard 
project, and I you know certainly wouldn't want to underestimate the difficulty uh, of it. But I would also you know since we are 17 months into the war, let's you know sort of remember some of the structural strengths that are there on the Ukrainian side and on the side of the countries that are supporting Ukraine. Of course, the news story would be the rise of the AFD in Germany, and that's appropriate. But to pull back from that news story and look at some of the structural factors over the last 17 months is not to see the rapid march to an end to the war or to victory. That's not what we've gotten uh, so far. And that's bitter. Uh, and that's hard to live with and will be hard to live with for the uh, for this foreseeable future. But you know, that's a very, very high bar, you know, lower the bar a little bit. And what you get is an increasing willingness uh, on the part of countries to give Ukraine more and more sophisticated weaponry. You've seen that, you know, you've had elections in Sweden and Italy, uh, and we've had Orban all along. So you have these skeptics who make, you know, critical noises about the war and seem to suggest that there's some kind of better alternative, but they do absolutely nothing about it. You know, sort of when push comes to shove, even the populist figures who are part of the coalition uh, are unwilling to uh, to pull away from support uh, for Ukraine. Of course, you have Finland joining NATO and all that that means for the strengthening uh, of uh, of the alliance. And for all that we speak of, you know, sort of destabilizing polarization in the United States, and you know, we're dysfunctional, and you know, there's there's all of that, and and, and there's an element of, of of truth in that, of course. Uh, but it hasn't been the case with U.S. policy toward uh, toward Ukraine. Uh, right. And we're talking about 17 months into what's a very difficult conflict, and there's not a light at the end of the tunnel uh, at the moment. And you could say it's a country that's very far away from the U.S. and, you know, <laughs> a country of which we know little and, and you know, sort of care little, that, that kind of rhetoric from, from the 1930s about, uh, uh, about Czechoslovakia, and that has not come into, uh, come into play. So that's not a news story. I don't think you could write a news story. Coalition for Ukraine endures another month and becomes marginally more powerful. You know, that's just a, a boring story to read. But it kind of is the story of the last 17 months, not just that the coalition has maintained its structure, but the structure has become more robust and in a certain way less risk averse when it comes to, uh, to supporting uh, Ukraine. So we can't be sanguine about the future. There are lots of threats and challenges on the horizon, but let's also not forget what we have. And, you know, if we are going to think about morale uh, on the part of Ukraine and on the part of uh, our own countries, uh, it's it's very very necessary to tell some of these success stories as success stories. So yes. you know, yes. don't want to be Pollyanna here, but uh, uh, I feel strongly about this point. I, I think you said that very well, and I agree one hundred percent with you, Michael. Um, I, I guess the question we have to ask, and it's it's got to be one of our closing questions because I think it's a question that takes us into the politics of today and the politics of tomorrow. Uh, but it is, I think, the, the core question. Should there be a negotiating position? Obviously, we've all learned as historians that war and negotiation go hand in hand. They're often thought of as being different. But one of the lessons, I think, of the historical scholarship of the last 10, 20 years that you and I have been a part of right, is to, to get us beyond this either-or way of thinking. Um, and even Henry Kissinger has been making this argument as a, as a centurion recently. Um, what are the what are the possible areas of negotiation? What are the ways to forestall just a continuation of a war of attrition? Or, or are those non-existent pathways now? I, I think when we talk about really substantive war-ending negotiation, uh, I don't believe in it while Putin 
uh, is uh, in power. Now, I'll develop the argument in just a moment, but I'll start by qualifying it in a few ways. I do think that the U.S. government and the Russian government should try to have a conversation about red lines. I'm pretty sure that there is that conversation ongoing, probably through yes. uh, the CIA with Director Burns uh, there, who's just the right person for that kind of conversation and probably has the trust and respect in Moscow that they would need to speak about some of these things. You know, these are two nuclear powers, uh, the role of error. Uh, as as you would well know, Jeremy, as a, as a, as a historian of the Cold War, the, ro- the role of error is frightening uh, when it comes to nuclear powers. Uh, and, you know, there I think it makes a lot of sense. I'm not sure if I would call that diplomacy exactly, but it makes a lot of sense to have yes. dialogue and, uh, and contact. It would be foolish of the U.S. to be squeamish uh, in that regard. It is, I think, necessary in a kind of built-in way for the U.S. to be receptive and open to signals when they may start to come from the Russian government about some Russian intention to scale back. I just don't think Russia is going to stop this war. I don't think Putin has changed his ambitions, and uh, I, I don't see it, and I don't believe it's going to happen uh, anytime soon. But, you know, that's me guessing. So if there is a kind of change of mindset in the Kremlin, we can't be so locked into our positions that we refuse to see it or fail to see it. I'm thinking of the great Mel Leffler book about the Cold War and sort of missed opportunities for scaling back the Cold War. And that's a book that, you know, all of us should be thinking about. You don't want to be too set in your ways and make too many firm predictions about, you know, the implacable, never-ending, never-changing Russians and uh, they'll always be this way, and Putin will always be this way. Well, let's let's test that empirically and, and, and sort of leave the door open. But negotiation that would be aimed at ending the war through a kind of humoring uh, of Russian needs as they perceive them and as they believe them to be at the present moment does not seem prudent to me. It does not seem you know sort of legitimate or fair to Ukraine. It does not seem to be in our larger hour, Ukraine, our allies, you know, sort of U.S., our larger uh, security interests. You know, I think in some ways, you know, in 2014, the U.S. and allies bent over backwards not to go too far. You know, I think Biden, in ways that were probably good because it helped to build support for the war when it came, for Ukraine uh, in the war when it came, uh, I think Biden bent over backwards to talk to Putin in the summer of 2021, the Geneva summit and uh, all of that shuttle diplomacy that, that winter. I just don't think that there is, at this point, a deal to be had. Uh, And I don't think that Putin could end the war without demanding some kind of territorial concessions from Ukraine. And I think the moment he would get those territorial concessions, if we would be unwise enough to give them, they would be the pretext for the next uh, invasion. What we cannot forget uh, from the history of the last eight years is that we fudged everything on Crimea. Yes, we didn't support it. We sanctioned Russia. We didn't like it. We complained. We said that we were going to isolate Russia because of Crimea, but we lived with it. And maybe there wasn't much of an alternative in 2014 to living with the annexation of Crimea. But what happens eight years later? Russia invades Ukraine from Crimea. So, you know, you just cannot do that again. You cannot set up those conditions and allow that to be uh, a possibility. And I think with Putin in power, And I'm going to guess here, even the successors to Putin are not going to be very easy to deal with on these questions. But as long as Putin is in power, you know, unless he would change in some absolutely dramatic, profound, fundamental way, which I can't imagine him doing 
this option is going to be off the table. And so this is a conversation for another discussion with you guys. The strategy is not to deal with Russia, to, to sort of uh, negotiate with Russia. Uh, and the strategy is not to defeat Russia. The strategy is, surprise, surprise, you know, for a student of George Kennan in the Cold War, the strategy is to contain Russia for the long term. Right. And and your sense is that in, in the short term, that involves basically a continuation of the current war that we have in front of us. Yes, it involves long-term structured patient support uh, for uh, Ukraine, certainly. And I don't think that the Biden administration administration has done this, but certainly not saying, well, you've got the counteroffensive and then six months from now, you know, we've got to figure out how to, how to, how to, how to kind of wrap this up. Uh, that's uh, really not, you know, sort of a possible or a smart position. Uh, you know, it involves creating long-term structures of economic support uh, for Ukraine, that's going to be a big problem. Let's not forget also about the refugee, internally displaced people uh, issue in Ukraine, which needs, uh, again, support, not just military support, but support from Ukraine's uh, friends and partners. You know, it means uh, maybe spending more effort on sanctions implementation. We've slapped a lot of sanctions on Russia. I think that they're sort of finding creative ways to evade them. So that's another important part of the uh, of the war to kind of grind down uh, the Russian war machine. And that has to be done, you know, sort of very uh, zealously. And then I think that the U.S. Uh, and, you know, its partners supporting Ukraine have to learn how to speak to countries that are not on board uh, with supporting Ukraine. Uh, but that could become closer partners in the future. I think potentially even including China here. I don't think some of the very rigid matrix we use for looking at China as you know, only a kind of adversary in the world may apply in the case of uh, of Ukraine. China was Ukraine's uh, biggest trading partner before the war. China will be one of the big countries to reconstruct Ukraine after the uh, war. And I don't think that China likes Russia's war very much. So there might be interesting opportunities that open up in that regard uh, in the future if we can sort of learn to talk and maybe engage in a kind of really shrewd diplomacy uh, that could start to move things uh in the future in Ukraine's direction. So military support, a kind of structural opposition to Russian militarism, and uh, an increasingly multidimensional creative diplomacy, I think that that's, uh, that's the best way forward. Zachary, uh, you've you've been listening and, and obviously uh, contributing to this discussion quite a bit. Um, as we sort of bring it together here, um, and I think Michael's brought us to a real um, thoughtful and well-informed uh, way of thinking about where we go from here based on where we've been the last uh, two years, the last eight years, and, and even further back. It sounds like we're at a position that, that is similar to a Cold War position where we're in for a long struggle here, uh, a long struggle that we're a part of, but where others on the ground are paying the, paying higher costs than we as Americans are. How, how do you think that your generation, uh, and I don't just mean in the United States, you've spent much of this summer in Germany as well, how, how do younger people, those who are of military age like yourself, how do they see this? Is this part of a struggle uh, they support? Um, how, how, how do you th see this in the conversations with those who are closer to 18 than 48, like Michael and myself. <laughs> I do think that we felt it very personally uh, in, on, in February of, of last year when 
when the invasion began. And I, I, I do think that it is important to remember that we are of military age. And, and, and certainly, as silly as it sounds now, the, 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 the sense in, in my high school in, in February was, oh, we're going to have to go fight in World War III, <laughs> right? As, as silly as that sounds. And I think that there certainly isn't to that same degree today, uh, that sense among, among my generation in the United States. I definitely did feel in Germany that there is, there is a sense that, that this is a war that's close to home. And I think that's a lot, and, and it is a war that, that is their war as well. And I think that, that, that those two statements apply to, to the United States as well, but it, it's more difficult for us to feel the war um, viscerally or to feel as, as under attack as one does being only a few, a few thousand miles from, from, the, um, from the borders of Ukraine. Um, and in that context, I think, as uh, Professor Kimmich mentioned, uh, we need to continue to remind ourselves that there are people suffering in Ukraine. Um, and we need to continue to remind ourselves that there is a very important war being fought in Ukraine. And in that context, I think that even in moments of, of, of stagnation and when, when, when it appears um, that, that there may not be good news uh, for a long time, that, that we need to continue these conversations and, and continue to speak frankly and honestly about what the reality is on the ground, both in terms of the suffering of Ukrainians um, and in terms of the uh, seeming stagnation of the war into this long war of, of attrition. But what, what would you say to your friend Igor from the poem at the start, right? If he said, you know, even it's not, it's not the war he wants, but our actions are prolonging the likelihood that he as a Russian citizen will die in this war. Well, I think there's another, another aspect of this conversation is, is we need to remember that this isn't just another war. This is a war about some very clear principles. And even, I think even, even Putin's propaganda and his rhetoric reflects this. Uh, this is not simply a, another war, another war over, over territorial gain or another war over um, security threats. This is a war about some very fundamental principles, not just of democracy, but but of of world peace as we have constructed it since the end of the Cold War. And in that sense, I think we need to we need to be very clear when we're having these conversations. Not only are people suffering, but but they're suffering for these ideals, and they're suffering in the context uh, of of what is in, in, in many ways a clash of systems. And, and in that sense, I do think the Cold War analogy holds mm -hmm. up. Or what Michael is calling a collision exactly. of systems. Right? Yeah, I use the, in the book, I use the word in the plural collisions, because I think it's, that speaks in some ways to the global impetus of the war, the kind of global logic of the war. If I could just quickly make a plug here for two Please. books, because I think a follow on from your poem, Zachary, and from your, I would say very, humanistic framing of the war, which I think isn't entirely correct. In other words, as, as, as something that a war that affects human beings uh, and human beings in great uh, duress. Um, there's a Ukrainian writer whose name is Andrei Kurkov, K-U-R-K-O-V. Uh, and he has two books, which I really think should be read uh, in tandem. The first is a diary of the Maidan uh, revolution, which is often quite funny uh, you know, just a kind of writer living in Kiev who who happens to see this 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 big event happen before his eyes. Uh, but then, of course, he also writes about the annexation of Crimea and and, and the hostilities. 
uh, in Eastern Ukraine. And then he has a second book, which has just come out. I, I can't remember the title of it, but uh, easy enough to find if, if one would Google his name, uh, which is a diary of the war. Uh, and it's, it's, it's hard to read. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's a book of small things, all the little details uh, of life and the kind of, you know, houses that he's lived in, you know, in Kiev and elsewhere. Uh, and, you know, the ways in which uh, his life and his family's life has been transformed by the war. And he hasn't seen the absolute worst of it, but still it just comes through in a way that's, uh, uh, you know, not political, not strategic, not ideological, but very, very human. Uh, and, you know, I think our news media actually does a good job with the with the war in Ukraine. I wouldn't complain about our media coverage, but it's easy to lose this human uh, element. So, Zachary, I appreciate your bringing it back in at the beginning and bringing it back in at the end. And, and uh, I would urge our readers to take a look at these uh, at these two books to to enhance the sense of, of of the human significance of these events. And, and Michael, I, I think you have once again uh, provided us in this discussion, as I think you you, you pretty uniquely do, both the thirty thousand geo thirty thousand foot geostrategic view, and the close to the ground uh, humanistic view of of what 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 this war is, what it really means, and and quite frankly, how uh, humbling it must be for all of us, at how few the good options are, and maybe there is a a. Um, a small optimism in recognizing that that there isn't an easy solution, but there are at least things to do that make sense for a larger humanistic purpose, even if they continue to um, keep us in a p- position where people are suffering. At least we can hope that we're moving in slowly in some direction toward some humanistic uh, purpose in this terrible, terrible war that has already gone on. It seems, uh, it seems already like an eternity, and it's it's been 17, 18 months, and as you tell us, it's nowhere near near the end now. Michael, thank you so much for sharing your insights and, and, and your wisdom and your thoughts uh, with us today. Jeremy and Zachary, it's always you know such a pleasure to discuss these issues and to, to go back and forth. It does feel like it's now a 17-month conversation, and, and for however long this, 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 this awful criminal war goes on, I hope and assume that our conversation will go on as well. Michael, I look forward to the day we can, you and I and Zachary, talk about this war as history. Right, exactly. And and your book is hopefully one crucial step in, in getting us there. I want to remind our listeners, Michael's new book is Collisions, and it will be out soon. And we will, of course, have him back on probably before the book is out and certainly when the book is out. Thank you again, Michael. Thank you, Zachary, for sharing your account of Igor with us uh, today. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners. Thank you for waiting for us after a month of uh, summer vacation. We're Happy to be back, and we look forward to many more episodes with you and with guests like Michael Kimmage on This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This Is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.